Welcome, you podrific, pod-standing podience. Yes, when all legit shiz words have been siphoned and exhausted, it is time to act as if I am creative with my unmistakable mystique. Mystique. Now that is a fun word. It's one of those words similar to facetious, where there's really only that one word that captures the essence of the meaning perfectly, beautifully, brilliantly. It is officially the new year, my beloved listeners. What does the new year mean to you? Is it new year stale habits? New year same habits? Or is it truly new year anew? Your once a year opportunity for, in the words of John Locke, who basically crafted the architecture for our constitution, a tabula rasa or blank slate and your opportunity for novel pursuits. At my former white-collar company, WCC, the theory extant was that each year your slate would be wiped clean, and only those achievements and malfunctions for that calendar period would be evaluated. How godlike, transcendent, and omniscient of them, those motherless whores. But they were not divine miracle workers. Their memories were shady at best, and it was not a fairly articulated evaluation. Today, we will discuss the penetrating, lasting value of being right with your assumptions and accusations. We will discuss the undeniable simplicity in straight F-Stars talk, and this session will serve as a reminder for the hallowed social grounds we claim to walk and anointed emissaries we sometimes believe ourselves to be, are oft tainted and tarnished with the cold, whiplash-inducing reminder of past and present realities. This is a touchy F-Stars topic, and as we slip and slide into this new year, we are going to touch it. Welcome, loyal listeners, to Chapter 51, White Collar, Black Belt, Social Justice Warfare. CSCS acronym, Constant State of Culture Shock. This is really a second part, or the second part of a two-parter. The first part, of course, was the preceding chapter 50, White Collar, Black Belt, Politically Direct, Filthy Mouth, Pure Motive. There was such a plethora of material to present. I felt instead of cramming it and forcing it and ramrodding it into like a three-hour session, I would just break it up into different topics and different reminders that would best serve by way of example and explanation. Happy New Year, audience. Happy F-Stars New Year. You know what will keep your year both novel and content? If I afford you the tale of the title for this episode and gift you some long-awaited quotes. Tale of the title. PSCS. Perpetual State of Culture Shock or constant state of culture shock. I like CSCS because it's repetitive, it's easier to remember. But what the F-stars is culture shock. Now, if this was in the workplace, that would be one of those buzzsaw words. Now, the buzzsaw words, I'm going to tell you something. I have been very busy behind the scenes. I have released a little bit of information recently. I did post the eighth episode of the two-parter for Whiskey Wednesday. That was a fantastic time. They're always a fantastic time. 
But really, it's fun because I know that now with the audience and the allies with Audible Ally, these Whiskey Wednesdays are kind of a hybrid across platform forum. So I find that to be stimulating every time I release one of those. I did release a new Whiskey Wednesday, and I did release a new episode, Chapter 4 of The Basement Party, Part 4. And that episode actually has not only Wham Bam Cam playing Bruce Sodiker, but it has Red Devil as the narrator. There are things for you to enjoy in many different respects. But for these, I also have been interviewing people. Like I just interviewed one of my oldest friends, the wombmate of Seadrew, my brother abroad, Adam, who is in the Navy currently. So I will be posting that episode soon. That's a Chemohawk Podience session. And very soon, I will be interviewing Wham Bam Cam's sister, the Croesus Medic. And you will learn more about her nicknames on that episode as well. So there is a lot of new information coming your way. But to bring it back to Buzzsaw Words, when I was interviewing my brother abroad, Adam, recently, I asked him the question that I ask all guests, which is, what does Chemohawk Sessions mean to you? What do you get out of it? And guess what? He really, really appreciated Buzzsaw Words because he said that for weeks after, people would be dropping lingo around him in a workplace setting. Under his breath and sometimes audibly, he would say, Oh, that's a buzzsaw word. Oh, yep, that's a buzzsaw word over there. Oh, just heard a buzzsaw word. And someone called him out and was like, okay, what are you saying? Is that like a new term that we're supposed to know? Well, yes and no. <laughs> it made an impact. And of course, he enjoyed listening to the Chemohawk Podience session about his brother, Cedru, his wombmate. There's a rumor that when you have a twin, you feel things that they feel, regardless of how many miles may separate you. There very well may be truth to that. I'm talking about constant state of culture shock. How do you define culture shock? The buzzsaw term. It's really like a sociological term. It's a noun. The feeling of disorientation experienced by someone who is suddenly subjected to an unfamiliar culture, way of life, or set of attitudes. Example, jet lag, culture shock, altitude sickness. We struggle to get to grips with this. Our first morning in South America. This is a term and it makes sense and you know you've probably experienced it, especially if you've traveled abroad or if you've just been to areas in the United States that you don't off-travel. So it's perfectly reasonable to have a state of culture shock. But for me, and for purposes of this episode, what do you do when you in your own country, in your own familiar environment, in your own familiar workplace, neighborhood, social stratum, what do you do when you start feeling like every day or every week you are introduced to a whole new set of culture shock because the rules keep changing the height of the basketball goal keeps changing. The distance of the goalpost keeps changing. Whether you're able to use an aluminum bat or a wood bat, all of those mechanics keep changing. It is not even conceivable to know, one, what your country stands for, what your environment or community stands for, when the rules keep changing. It's frustrating. It's exhausting. The social justice warfare aspect, you got to be really cautious when you use words like war. There was a time where we had what they called the war on drugs. And while the motivations may have served some benevolent results, when you declare war on something, by definition, now it has become a bellicose or waspish or pugilistic social interaction of sorts. And now you feel like you're a warrior and you're in battle and it's going to be contentious and it's going to be adversarial. I felt like my one-on-ones with my managers was like warfare. Instead of going into it feeling like you're coming to wave the white flag and appeal to their better nature for some type of peace or some type of equal footing, I felt like every time I went into a one-on-one, I had to come with both barrels loaded. I had to feel like I brought emotional armor 
And I had to feel like I had to come with arguments ready, counter arguments. We used to call those blocks when I was in debate. It doesn't set the proper tone or mood for you to get business done when you feel like you're involved in some type of warfare. So warfare is, by definition, it's exhausting and it's inflammatory. However, I truly believe that we are in a state of warfare, but I call it social justice warfare. And I reserve the term social justice warrior, social justice warfare for people that are basically causing the freedoms, the space that you have to move around and the voice that you have to say what you want to say. They are forcing that to be at odds with some type of conflict where the claim is that the damage done of your freedom of voice and your freedom of expression is more damaging and more damning than the freedom that you have to express it in the first place. This causes a rift. And now we have a chasm or a lacuna so large, it's no longer just political. Like you have a political rift, but you have a racial rift, you have a cultural rift, you have a age rift, and you have a generational rift as far as rifts go. I know this is starting to look like Swiss cheese on the ground, but you have a situation where it's permeated into every facet of society. So normally, if you work somewhere, your job was safe as long as you did your work and you didn't commit, say, a crime. But now it's to the point where your job isn't safe and your reputation isn't safe. Your social media presence isn't safe. And you're really in a constant state of fear. You're in a constant state of uncertainty. I could have come up with one of 20 different titles for this episode, but this is a constant state of culture shock because we have lost any sense of identity that we have as a nation, as a community. It's very hard to differentiate what we stand for from what we claim to stand for or what we should stand for. And so in this jumbled, indistinguishable mix, you really have to be, and I'm going to use this word a lot in this year and years to follow, is intentional, radical intentionality. You have to be intentional with what you say. You have to be intentional with who you say it to. And unfortunately, you have to be intentional with the tone of the conveyed message. So this is culture shock, and this is why we are suffering from it, because we, a lot of us, are not equipped with the mental, social, and emotional maturity to have discourse about touchy F-stars topics. Here's some quotes. I appreciate your patience as I give you these quotes that you've been salivating for. We've all become so conscious of how we'll be perceived and so frightened to possibly offend someone that we filter ourselves to what borders on dishonesty. Sure, as my wife constantly reminds me, you don't have to say everything you think. But when did speaking plainly become such a sin? Aaron Blaylock. Now that quote is so God D-Star is powerful and perfect. I'm going to just leave it at that for now. It's funny, when I was watching the debates between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, two very accomplished intellectuals that I have a, well, let's just say more than a modicum of respect and reverence for, but these guys were talking about what is life? What is religion? Is there a God? What is truth? I can tell you that from a philosophical perspective, truth is one of the most sought after MacGuffins, if you're a fan of cinema terms, but it's like that elusive wall ball that you're desperately trying to collect so that your schoolmates can continue the game. It's something that you really should be searching for, but you also got to be careful because you got to be wary of false truths. Now, I'm falsetto prophet, so I am the proverbial wolf in sheep's onesie, but I claim to be a false prophet. I'm not claiming to be the answer to all of life's ailments. I'm simply saying that this truth concept is very distinct 
it's very dangerous. And you have to make sure that it's something that you place value on and rightfully so. This quote talks about, we filtered ourselves to the point that we're basically dishonest. And I can tell you that all the research that I've done on philosophers and historians, dishonesty or a, a warped truth is not a value. It's not something that's a virtue and it's not something that will be sustainable. So we shouldn't be speaking in a way that's not truthful. We should be speaking in a way that is as truthful as we are able to muster, despite how it may put us at odds with some recipients of what we have to say. I think the truth is more important than people's very frangible sensibilities becoming saddened and offended. I believe this to be the case. Now, I've created a term. It's called retroactive racism. So R and R, like rest and relaxation, which by the way, in this new year, audience, please make sure that you are resting and relaxing and taking that much deserved R and R. I challenge you to not let your vacation days go to waste this year. I recommend highly that you take time for yourself just to be like, don't take time off to work another job. Don't take time off to explore all these stressful, intricate projects. Just take time off and stop. Just stop doing things for a day or three, however many days you like. But I call it retroactive racism. I say that your racism should be relevant and recent if you are going to accuse somebody of it. Like an example that you utilize in the midst of a behavioral based interview. Any interview that I ever had, they wanted examples that were recent. They wanted to hear about not only how you saved the organization, but you did it in the last three weeks. They always wanted recent, relevant examples for the BBI. Well, if you have to provide recent and relevant examples for the BBI, then if you're going to accuse somebody of being racist or a culturalist, that term that I like to use, even though it doesn't mean what you think it means, if you're going to accuse somebody of being a sexist, a chauvinist, a feminist, a social justice warrior even, if you're going to accuse anybody of anything, you should be able to provide a recent example. That's why it's the retroactive. And I use racism because it's R&R &R and you get that beloved alliteration. I have heard stories and not just a handful of stories. I have heard a shiz ton of stories about footage or archival archives and posts and things that people said when they were drunk in the middle of the night, things that people said in college things that people posted or otherwise typed in some form of communication or communique 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the early 70s. I believe there was a comment about a well-known newscaster who referred to someone as hot chocolate about 30 years ago. And my understanding was that they were labeled a racist. They were fired. They were blacklisted. They were publicly shunned. And I heard all of this. And of course, with the news, you got to take it kind of fast and loose. You can't really latch on to every word and key phrase. People that use just the words and the key phrases from situations to further their argument, that's a social justice warrior approach, I believe. You have to understand at least the base dynamics of a situation before you can launch very bold and blistering accusations. But I take all that, that example of the hot chocolate and I'm like, okay, so you called somebody hot chocolate. So my assumption is, is that for people to take umbrage with that, the person had to have been something that was a darker skin tone. I mean, if you called someone that was a pale skin redhead a hot chocolate, I don't know what you're really saying. Like, are you saying that they're hot to the touch? Are you saying that they taste good? I don't know. But if you called somebody hot chocolate, regardless of what their pigmentation was, I fail to see how that's not a compliment. Because if somebody called me a beautiful, brilliant snowflake or a sexy snowflake even, I would be like, okay, so you've identified that I'm white, so you're observant and you think I'm sexy. Well, 
I got to tell you, I was having an okay day, like a five out of 10 day, and now I'm having like an eight out of 10 day, provided that the person that said it wasn't hideous. It's really a compliment. I mean, what if you called somebody a cold chocolate? Or what if you called them a lukewarm chocolate? What if you called them a frigid chocolate? Or what if you just said they were an ugly chocolate? Well, now you're being mean. So then you're a mean racist, I guess. That was said also so many years ago. I don't think that that establishes a pattern. I don't think that that establishes a current definitive definition of who you are today. Also, it's taken out of context. I mean, you're talking about one loose phrase that was dropped over three decades ago. I don't know what the, well, it's definitely not recent, and I don't know how relevant it is. So if you couldn't use that as an example for an interview, oh, I did something 30 years ago. Oh, great. Okay, well, we're not interested in you. But if you use an example 30 years ago, I don't know that it's going to have any current standing. So if you can't use it in an interview, I don't know how you can use it to label somebody anything. Now, we talked about this in the last episode, like if you're a smoker and you stop smoking, or if you have one cigarette, you're not a smoker. But if you kill one life form, you're a killer. I think about that. Does that mean that if you made an insensitive comment and it applied to race or gender or sex or preference or age or whatever, do you think that if you made an insensitive comment 30 years ago, that you're still now what you were then, that you haven't changed at all? And does it only work with negative shiz? Like if you said something mean or something that people took offense to 30 years ago, and now they're going to hold that over you. What if you said something positive 30 years ago? What if you said that I love every single race more than my own? Or what if you said that I'm a man, but I actually love women more than men? I think women are superior to men. Would that be something that people would use against you to your credit or that they would use as a example of character? Like, let's say you said something mean today. Would you have a batch of supporters saying, oh, but wait a second. We found this footage from 30 years ago where you gave someone a compliment or you said something encouraging. Would that then nullify whatever you just said five minutes past? I don't know that it would. And I don't know that anybody is digging up to find good shiz on people. They're only digging up bad shiz. So really shame on them for being negative and for being pessimistic. But I say, if you're going to dig up stuff on people, you got to dig up both. You got to dig up their feats and you got to dig up their failures or else you are nothing but a piece of shiz. So retroactive racism, you know, now you have an understanding of what I mean by that. I don't think that retroactive racism really carries much in the way of merit as well it shouldn't. We have shown that we cannot exist in a world or a workplace where no one says anything to one another. And this is not sustainable, nor is it a good time. There was a time where you could sit in a room with a boss of the opposite sex. And now I've heard of a lot of companies where there will be a third party, like a stenographer or a witness of sorts, just to ensure that no hanky-panky occurs. Ah, hanky-panky, what a term of yore. But isn't that so effed up that Two grown adults that both have something to lose, gainful employment, that is. I don't know that a witness should be necessary, but this is the world in which we live. Also, we live in a world where you used to be able to give a coworker compliments. Like if you're a man, you could say to the woman, oh, I like those sneakers, or I like that blouse. Or, hey, have you been working out? You seem to really be toning up or whatever. Eh, eh, eh. That's all career suicide now. You start talking to someone of the opposite sex. Hell, at this point, you talk to somebody of the same sex and you give them a compliment. You have just exposed yourself to potential liability. Now, you're probably chuckling, okay, but it's not a funny matter. It's just not funny because this is real. This is the reality of which we are all part of. This is the contemporary stage that we are all F-stars dancing on. So you have to be careful what you say at work. I don't agree with it. I don't support it. I don't endorse it. But it's not Falsetto Profit's world. It is a world that Falsetto Profit must have temporary residence in. 
Why is it conceivable but unachievable, I wonder? Well, because sex, race, age, capabilities, and handicaps, sexual pursuits, and sexual hangups, your political, religious, cultural, and ideological proclivities are too big a part of your being, too rich a portion of your molecular, environmental, social core. We have, in essence, been asked, demanded, compelled to treat other blood flesh organisms as cold steel droids. You know it's true. You have to be a robot at work or else you're going to offend somebody. My own personal solution to apply here is one of radical reversal, another example of alliteration. Everyone keeps everyone honest, within reason, of course, and it is in that within reason parameter that we all, no doubt, will stumble, grumble, and F-stars fumble. But we need to speak in political directness, not political correctness, which is indirect, suspect, and a dialect of neglect. 1. The goal is to call people out on their shiz, but 2. It is to establish a genuine rapport with those in your sphere of influenza. You remember sphere of influenza now, that was a seven deadly synergy in the workplace. And how does one establish rapport? Through a honed repper F-stars trois of repartee, repost, rejoinders, verbal judo on occasion, and ultimately coalesce into what I call a band of badinage, where you are surrounded by banter-rich brothers and conversational swordplay sisters. It's a brotherhood. It's a sisterhood. When you work with people, you form a bond. And now, even if you don't agree on anything politically, ideologically, socially, whatever, you do share a common goal and you should be seeking the common mission. And if you can think of your coworkers as people that you have something in common with, that can make it easier. But we should be allowed to call out our colleagues and our counterparts on their bullshits without it now becoming a thing where you said that your colleague was disinterested, impressionable, and lackluster on their performance or regarding their involvement in an organization or on a committee that you're part of. If they then say, oh, well, I take offense to you taking exception with my behavior, so I'm going to blow this up into some big monstrosity of an HR issue, now the damage is far worse than the initial slight that they may have felt that they were privy to because you called them on something. So you have to be very careful about what you say and what you're going to take offense to, though. I don't think that everyone should take offense to everything. Because then nobody can talk. And if we're not talking, we no longer have the truth. And then that truth becomes warped and it becomes disconnected from a truthful reality. So then everybody is in the Tower of Babel, which of course is useless. We will never reach the apex of anything because we can't communicate properly. Now, as far as diversity goes, as in blending people of different geographical, cultural, sociopolitical backgrounds into the same blender and pressing the thresh button. Speaking of thresher, here's an interesting little tidbit. Note that thresher sharks are one of the few shark species that jumps fully out of the water and uses their tail to stun prey. That's pretty freaking awesome if you ask me. And if you watch videos of it, they say that their large dorsal fin, I believe it's the dorsal fin, snaps at like 60 miles an hour in the water, thus stunning and immobilizing fish. I can't tell you how many times I wanted to be a shark. Now, I've already got the mohawk, so when I'm swimming, I look like a shark underwater. But I wanted to be a shark. And I wanted to whip my fin into camo, freck, grandma repeatedly until they were stunned and immobilized. But I never had the opportunity to do that as I'm not a shark, sadly. 
Here's one for you. This is going to be a touchy expression, but I think I've brought up a fair point here. So the idea here, right, in America is we are all about embracing cultural, culturalism. We're all about embracing cross cultures. We're all about people feeling that they can come here, all different walks of life, from all different walks of land, and they can be who they are, right? Right? Am I right? I think I'm right. I think this is something that is vastly irrefutable. Growing up, the word fag, that's F-A-G, and faggot, which is a longer version of the same term. Growing up, that was sprinkled around as voluminously and generously as paprika on a F-star's doubled egg. In Europe, fag translates to a cigarette, and it also is defined as a tiring or unwelcome task, a grind or a chore, if you can imagine it. Okay, imagine if you will for a moment. What if my credo for chemohawk sessions was from the very beginning unwind the grind with a daily fag or something like that. Now, what I've really said is if I'm British or if I'm British and I don't know better, or if I'm from some European nation, I've simply said, you're going to unwind the grind with a daily cigarette, but nobody would take the time to investigate. Well, what did you mean by that? Oh, you're John Constantine or Constantine from Liverpool. You are British and you just mean a cigarette. Ah, very good. Okay. You are off the hook. Proceed, my son. No, 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 no. People would see unwind the grind with a daily fag or unwind with a daily fag or something. And immediately it would be lava hot discourse flowing all over the world. It's like, how could somebody do this? The shame. Well, that word fag is mainly used as an offensive term for homosexuals here in the States. And it has been around as long as I've been alive and obviously far before that. It does have other meanings. The problem is that even though it has other meanings, like other terms that have come to mean different things, you should probably avoid using it at all costs because of the cost involved in using it. It's a very strong word. And according to some definitions that I'm seeing online, it should be avoided in nearly all situations. So for example, like fagging has also meant working hard and getting tired as in fagging out. And in England, it's a cigarette, as I've discussed. And in British boys schools, fags are servants for older boys. So a variety of meanings. After all this inflammatory speak, do you recognize the irony here? America prides itself. Now remember, pride, audience, we have articulated the inherent dangers with prideful intention, but America expresses their glee at being a welcoming country wherein those from all walks, talks, and dirty socks and jocks of life are not only allowed, but encouraged to migrate to. So a man or woman, lad or lassie from Europe, say they brave the trek and they forge a new life for themselves in the States. They better extricate that damaging, demoralizing doomsday F-stars word, F-A-G, from their repertoire or social lexicon, for if they employ its use here in America, regardless of context, they are setting themselves up for a signature, not on Santa's list, but a blacklist that will follow them around like a black rain cloud so powerfully divulged in that Ridley Scott film, Black Rain. That Englishman or Englishwoman's vocabulary has now been reduced. They have to remove the word that meant cigarettes in their culture from daily usage entirely. Their own cultural idiosyncrasies ask to suicide themselves and remove themselves from the annals of historical significance. Do you see, Podience, the supplantation of one's culture for a culture of daily and renewed culture shock. So you have a British person coming to America, they have their own lingo, they have their own idiosyncrasies in their language, and they are having to forfeit words that would have been perfectly acceptable in their home country. So this person's culture has now been slightly diminished, 
for the sake of another culture in hand. This is just an observation that I have made, and I consider it to be something of a contradiction. Now, there is a dialogue here between Detective Terrence Washington and Tom Ludlow from the great film Street Kings. Tom Ludlow, of course, is played by Keanu Reeves, and Terrence Washington is played by the very ripped Terry Crews. If it ain't LA's deadliest white boy, aren't you on the wrong side of the yellow tape? Congrats on four more notches for your gun belt. I'll be praying for the families of your victims. As evil as those men were, they had a right to trial. There's going to be some blowback from the Korean community on this one. Well, now that you're all militant, why don't you just say it? You think I'm a racist. Do you have another explanation? No, I don't, because if I roll and determine the suspects are black, yellow, or brown, I'll blow them out of their socks. But if they're white, I'll give them a ride home. Do you know why? Because I'm a racist. Fuck you. Oh man, I would give my right arm to have that shit on tape. What happened to you, Terrence? We used to be brothers. It's a good example in form because you have one detective calling another detective a racist, but that detective just saved the lives of some Korean girls that were being held hostage by some Korean perverts. I think the problem is that the terms that we toss around, especially on social media, as my boy Whamcam would say, you are a keyboard warrior. You are very flippant with what you accuse people of, not realizing the damage that you are potentially and most likely causing just by using loose terms and making baseless accusations. And so it has become like a lot of things, I think almost faddish, where it's faddish to accuse somebody of something. Because if you accuse somebody of something, then you shine the spotlight on them and you take any self-reflection off of yourself. I think you should just be careful, not only if you're calling somebody a pejorative term, but you also should be careful if you are accusing somebody of being something that would disseminate pejorative terms. Because in this day and age, I think in some ways, the latter can be more damaging than the former because of how society reacts as a whole. I know that you probably think, like I often do, that America is a very reasonable land to inhabit. And this is great. But I look back in history sometimes to further bolster my arguments. And I found an article, so it's called American History Five Witch Hunts That Rocked the U.S. in the 20th Century by Donna Patricia Ward. Some of these you're going to be familiar with. Some of these you're going to be very familiar with. But if you recall the Salem Witch Trials, I sure do. And I have actually been to Salem, Massachusetts. It was a series of hearings and prosecutions of people accused of witchcraft in colonial Massachusetts. This was roughly between 1692 and 1693. And more than 200 people were accused. 30 were found guilty, 19 of whom were hanged. 14 women and five men. See, it wasn't just women. And one man, Giles Corey, was pressed to death after refusing to enter a plea, and several died in jail as well. Arrests were made in numerous towns beyond Salem and Salem Village, and over in Topsfield, for example. And the grand juries and trials for these capital crimes were conducted by the court and a superior court of judicature. Hangings took place publicly, and it was the deadliest witch hunt in the history of colonial North America. I venture to say that the death toll probably was higher. They usually have a lower death toll instead of a higher death toll. I know now it's a very high death toll for events that occur because it's shock value. It's an example of something that was ridiculous and it never should have taken place. And you could be convicted by your peers simply because of an unfounded accusation. And the penalty was severe. Now, this episode is one of colonial America's most notorious cases of mass hysteria. It's been used in political rhetoric and popular literature. It gives examples on the dangers of isolation. You know, like when you think COVID, everyone was isolated, everyone was uncertain, everyone was pissed off. Religious extremism, false accusations, and lapses in due process. 
According to historian George Lincoln Burr, the Salem witchcraft was the rock on which theocracy shattered. Sad, sad moment in the colony's history. You also had a lot of anti-German sentiment during World War I. There was a little event called the Palmer Raids, which were a series of raids conducted between 1919 and 1920. Now, it only took place over a few months, but this was done by the United States Department of Justice under Woodrow Wilson. I recall Woodrow Wilson being a decent president now that I think about it, but everybody, it seems, has a stain or two on their white-collar shirt. To capture and arrest suspected socialists, anarchists, and communists and deport them out of the United States of America. Now, these particularly targeted Italian immigrants and Eastern European Jews with supposed leftist ties with particular focus on Italian anarchists and labor activists. The raids and arrests occurred under the leadership of Attorney General Mitchell Palmer, and at least 3,000 were arrested. Several citizens were deported, including a number of prominent leftist leaders. And the Palmer raids occurred in the larger context of what they call the First Red Scare, which was a period of fear and reaction against communists in the U.S. immediately following World War I. So there you go. There's an example of, again, accusations being launched. How accurate are the accusations? What is the penalty if you are accused? It seems that the penalty is great. Because losing life, of course, is very intense and severe, but losing your liberty, losing your land, these are all very, very important. Now, there were what they call the Jerry and Jap derogatory term for Germans at the time, but it was actually a pretty mild aspersion, but they called them Jerry and Jap internment camps. This was a situation where, okay, we're at war with Germany, we're at war with Japan, but we had thousands and thousands, if not more, Japanese Americans and German Americans living throughout the country. But there was an issue. There was... Prior to World War II, there were years of fighting potential communists, which they believed were infiltrating the government. And now you have all these immigrants. There was concern they had ties to their homelands. So along the Pacific coast, many viewed Japanese Americans as a large threat to the American way of life after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Along the coast and the Midwest, Germans had a large immigrant group that had settled into America. A lot of them spoke English. And of course, they were recovering from harsh treatment after World War I. A lot of their businesses were boycotted, and a lot of their businesses were damaged by other Americans out of anger over what was happening with World War II. President Roosevelt issued a proclamation at the onset of the Second World War. It was basically one of the portions of the Alien and Sedition Acts that granted permission to apprehend, restrain, secure, and remove Japanese, German, and Italian non-citizens. This meant that anyone of Japanese, German, or Italian descent that had not become an American citizen before December 7th could be arrested, imprisoned, and or deported. Now, the Germans and Italians, they were taken into custody in much smaller numbers than the Japanese. The Japanese would go on to suffer considerably, and I believe ultimately about 120,000 people of Japanese descent were evicted from their homes and businesses, and they were held in various camps. This is historical, this is accurate, and it happens. Again, you have people making assumptions that people, various people are a threat, and then acting on those assumptions. Then you have the wonderful period of McCarthyism. It's actually defined, and it was also a man, but it's the practice of making false or unfounded accusations of subversion and treason, especially when related to communism, socialism, etc. The term originally referred to the controversial practices of Joseph McCarthy and has its origins in the period of the United States known as the Second Red Scare. We really don't like the color red. I don't know that we would make very good bullfighters, but who knows? Lasting from the late 1940s through the 1950s. So this is a much larger period of time much longer period of time. And you had political repression, persecution of primarily left-wing individuals. It was a campaign spreading fear of alleged communist and socialist influence. It was bad. It was a bad time. 
And the primary targets were government employees, figures in the entertainment industry, academics, and left-wing politicians, also labor union activists. It was similar to the witch trials, I think. It was more modern, but it was essentially you could just accuse your neighbor or anyone under the sun of having like a communist tie. And that would be more than enough to launch a full-blown investigation if they weren't already investigating you anyway. And then you would get what they call blacklisted, where you could not get any work in that industry for a very long time. I compare probably the most recent example is probably McCarthyism and our semi-contemporary American history. In today's world, like just look what happened to Gina Carino, who played Cara Dune in the show Mandalorian. She was in a few episodes of The Mandalorian. She was already scheduled through Disney to be on season two of The Mandalorian. Now, she is just one of many examples. Now, obviously, these celebrities get a lot more press, so it's easier to at least hear the initial story. You may not be able to hear it all the way through as things transpire, but she simply posted comments on her Twitter page that said, you know, the things that I'm seeing happening in this country where people are getting blacklisted and people are getting accused, like you're accused of being too conservative or you're accused of being ultra conservative or whatever. That was the example that she provided. But she said that that reminded her of how things occurred in like Nazi Germany and basically said that, you know, I would have said it's more like McCarthyism because one, McCarthyism was actually happening in America and it was very systematic and it was very unfair. But that's probably the example I would have used. But in the end, I don't know that it makes, as far as for hyperbole, I think it makes a fair point that we live in a culture now where the penalty is severe for you having an opinion. And that to me is counterintuitive to the American way, which is in America, my understanding is that everybody has an opinion. You're all afforded an equal platform to speak your opinion. And in speaking your opinion, the belief is that in the marketplace of ideas, whether it's at work, whether it's on a committee, whether it's in your personal life, whether it's in a community affair or a community event, my understanding is that if everyone can speak their mind, whether it's vitriolic, whether it's pacifistic, whether it's dealing with the environment, whether it's dealing with social concerns, whatever the topic, if you are allowed to speak your mind, society and the culture will make adjustments accordingly. So if you're allowed to say your piece and everybody says, no, you're an idiot, that doesn't make any sense. What should happen naturally is it'll start weeding out the bad ideas in theory, and then you will be left with some better ideas, perhaps not pure ideas, but you'll be left with better ideas if people are allowed to state their case and then argue it. And then maybe they'll realize themselves that it's not a good argument. But I stand by what I say. I think right now we are living in a country that's similar to McCarthyism, where all it takes is someone to launch an accusation and you, your career, your life can be in the shizzer. To finish the story with Gina Carino, after posting a pretty obvious comment that had sense to it and that was logical, she was officially cut from her contract with Disney and she was released from her obligation on what was going to be an upcoming season two of Mandalorian. That is just, like I said, one example. And I'm not acquainted with all the facts of how everything played out, but it's like one day she posts this thing and then within like three days, her contract was over. Now you tell me if there was something else going on, because to me, it looks pretty straight F-stars forward. There are some other topics that have been used just in the last five years that I've heard a lot of, and they give me pause. So we've all heard of something called reparations for slavery. It's the application of the concept of reparations to victims of slavery and or their descendants. Now, there are concepts for reparations in legal philosophy, transitional justice, for example. Reparations can take numerous forms. So we've all heard of terms like affirmative action, individual monetary payments, settlements, scholarships, waiving of fees, and some initiatives. Land-based compensation, it's a, it's a slew of different initiatives. The idea is that it's like a monetary apology, and I believe it's meant to cause some type of social change. It's one of those things where we have a very divisive culture, and it's getting more and more divisive. 
where you've often heard people talk about how you've got the rich and you've got the poor and then you've got the middle class, which is shrinking. You're already having this economic divide where you've got the very wealthy and you've got the very poor and they're clearly at odds. And so if the middle class shrinks, then you have just two big factions. We already have factions with geopolitical situations like COVID, where COVID became politicized and then it became an international politicization. And now you have a situation where you've got a rift where you're either someone who's taking the vaccine or you're not. And then that creates a rift. Well, then you have a rift between people on what type of an American they are. If you're a bleeding heart American or if you're an ultra conservative. So the political became very divisive as well. The problem though is when you throw around terms loosely like slavery and reparations for slavery and like past misdeeds or how the Native Americans were treated. I just gave you four examples of times where America was making accusations about various people for various reasons. And it led to people being hung. It led to people being put in camps, taken from their homes, taken from their businesses, taken from their property, people getting blacklisted where they couldn't work. So now you're going to remind people of the concept of slavery, where that is going to further be served as a political tool to cause dissent. Because you can have ideas that are good in theory. So like you have, for example, another example I'll use is like defunding the police. So there's an article, Defunding the Police, What It Means and What the Research Says on Whether More Police Presence Reduces Crime. This is by Clark Merrifield. But it's a term that just like reparations for slavery, you can have a good idea, but that idea that's good in theory has to be applied properly. It has to be managed well. It can't be exploited. It can't be taken advantage of. It can't be misused. It can't be abused. So anytime that you have an idea, it has to be carried out very professionally and very carefully. The problem is, is that we have all these ideas and we don't know how to back them up. We don't know how to see them through. Half the projects that we've ever started in this country never are completed. So you just have a lot of issues with the mechanics of a situation. Well, so with defunding the police, one, it's a hard thing to define. Like, what does it even mean? With all the movements that were occurring, you had this new movement, which was also very divisive and it was very inflammatory, and it was defund the police. Well, some people think defund the police is a movement, i.e. a stepping stone towards abolishing police departments completely. Others think that it's just simply to limit police by way of their financial means for military-style equipment. And some, they're in the middle where they say, well, their role in communities should be simply about crime prevention, and they should bring other services where money is earmarked for more like social problems, like mental health, housing, things like this. I always understood the police to, to be, their credo was protect and serve. The protecting is important, but so is the serving. It's a social function. They're serving the social environment. It's a social service. Somewhere along the way, that got upside down and inside out. And so now you have this issue where people are saying, well, you're either going to defund the police or you're going to fully fund the police. And then that has become divisive. Well, George Washington, which I've said before, said in his farewell address, he warned against two things in our country, and he was deadly F-star serious about it. But he said, beware of political factions. He understood the harm in creating a country where you've got half the country that hates the other half of the country. And that is exactly where we are today. And at work, you better just put your head down and do your work quietly. Because as soon as you start flipping off your mouth and talking about various things, right and true and proper as they may be, well, you're in a world of hurt. The tagline here is, everybody needs to calm the F-stars down. There's so many things to think about in this new year. There's so many things to be concerned about in this new year. Things get so awkward and they get so out of control so rapidly. It's like Ferris Bueller said in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Life moves pretty fast. And if you're not looking around and stop and look around once in a while, you might just miss it. Well, I think that misconception and unfounded accusations move pretty fast. 
So you have to be very intentional with radical intentionality, what you say and who you say it to. Now, I was curious, so I looked up a few things with regard to, so if you call somebody a racist, for example, because it's so inflammatory and because the damage can be so severe, I wondered if calling somebody a racist or a sexist or really any term, but because this all started with what I called retroactive racism, first you have to define, okay, what is slander? The action or crime of making a false spoken statement damaging to a person's reputation. And then libel is the same term, but it applies to written, a written accusation. So like if you're in the press or probably social media, I don't know where it falls with social media. I know that that is something that they've had to work out. So just like, for example, when shows that existed before were picked up by streaming services and then they started streaming, I was talking to my boy Wham Bam Cam the other day about this. You had songs that would be the soundtrack to a show. But then once that show got picked up by Netflix, for example, sometimes on some seasons, they had to change the songs entirely because they didn't have the rights, because I think the streaming services had not yet figured out how to get people their royalties from those songs being played. So because of that, they had to work things out. Well, to me, I don't know exactly where social media falls under a libel now. Like if you accuse somebody of something on Twitter, would that be equivalent to like a newspaper publishing something about you that's false and inaccurate or what have you? But I was curious if calling somebody a racist can be the basis of a defamation claim. So that article, that's the title, and it's posted by Steve Vondren. That was what I was curious about, because if you call somebody a racist and the person that you accuse loses their job, that's a pretty steep penalty, or you get blacklisted, something like that. That's a pretty steep penalty. So if the penalty is high, how do you prove the accusation? Some of this information came from a case of Covington Catholic Nick Sandman suing CNN for defamation. And what they decided was, the question extant was, can you call someone a racist and is that or is that not against the law? Well, one finding, characterizing someone as a racist is a non-actionable opinion. As a matter of law, courts treat statements characterizing people as racist as non-actionable opinion because they cannot be proved true or false. And then it went on to some other cases. The court dismissed the complaint outright, holding that the report did not reasonably convey any implication of racism. And they said, labeling someone a racist without more, though undoubtedly uncomplimentary, is non-actionable opinion. If you called someone a racist, that would not be grounds for a defamation lawsuit, according to the, the research that I investigated. But if you call them an F-stars, C-sucking stars, son of a B-stars racist, then maybe you would have a little bit more to your case. Part of the case, it boiled down to, it cannot, as a matter of law, base a defamation claim on a racist statement because it offers an expression of opinion so subjective as to be unprovable. Okay, so we know that it's subjective. And we know that it's practically impossible to prove with a validation of sorts. So this is interesting. And then one of the, in a court case, Stevens versus Tillman, in daily life, racist is hurled around so indiscriminately that it is no more than a verbal slap in the face and thus falls comfortably within the immunity for name calling. And then statements indicating that plaintiff is racist are clearly expressions of opinion that cannot be proven as verifiably true or false. This gives me pause because again, I don't know where it really should fall because I agree with everything that they've said, that it's impossible to prove. How do you prove someone's intent behind their words? It's very challenging. And yet, if somebody calls you that, we know that in contemporary society, it can be very damaging to you as a person. It just makes me wonder and it gives me pause as far as, should the word carry the weight that it does? Should people be ostracized or chastised for just the accusation? It's tough. And these all give me pause personal nugget time. <laughs> I was playing a video game with my brother-in-law 
And it was one of those games where we had had our communication set to private as far as in the air of trying to put out positive energy out into the world. And even though you say something about somebody, even if they live in another country, the ramifications can be devastating. <laughs> so there we were, we were playing this video game. It was one of those shoot 'em up games, having a great time. And I thought that we'd had our chat set to private so that we could just play together and talk privately and not have to worry about other people logging into our game. Well, one of us had forgotten to set private. And so there we were playing and this voice came over, a new character joined our game. And I think for whatever reason, I think they lived in Australia. Like they sound like they had an Australian accent and they were playing with us. And immediately we both stopped talking because we were both in shock that there was a third person and a third voice on the game that we didn't know who they were. This person was actually helping us in the game. They were lobbying frag grenades. They were reviving us when we would get shot. Our quality of gameplay dwindled significantly because we couldn't be ourselves. We were having an A to B conversation. And then this C person, you know, saw their way into it. So we just both exited the game after about two minutes, rebooted, and then came back. And here we are playing again. And as far as we knew, it was just the two of us again. My boy says, man, that son of a bitch, like who the hell did that person think they were? I mean, here we are playing. We're having a good time. And this mofo comes into our game and starts messing up stuff. He's getting in the way of our fun conversation. God, I hate it when sons of bitches do that. And then a pause. And then you heard in an Australian accent, guys, guys, I'm still here. <laughs> oh, man, we laughed so hard and we exited the game. And I think we just didn't play for a couple of days, but it was great. So wherever you are, Aussie down under the kangaroo killer, as it were, wherever you are, I apologize if we put out some negativity into the universe that hurt your feelings and damaged your sensibilities because we really were just trying to play a two-person game. Good times. There is a dialogue from Gran Torino, which I have dropped quotes from Gran Torino before. But in Gran Torino, the hero of the story, the protagonist, is Walt Kowalski, played by Clint Eastwood in beautiful fashion, who also directed Gran Torino, and it was a fantastically successful film. It did not earn as much money as American Sniper, also directed by Clint Eastwood, but it made a shiz ton of money. And in this movie, you have a cultural difference between Walt Kowalski, who is Polish, and then his neighbor, Tao Vang, who is Hmong. He's of the Hmong culture. And so Walt Kowalski takes Tao to his local barber, Martin, to teach him how men should talk to each other and all the little cultural idiosyncrasies that come along with that. So here's the dialogue, and it's absolutely hysterical. And yes, it contains touchy language, but this is taken directly from the film, and I want to say it in all of its articulated glory. Walt Kowalski, Clint Eastwood, takes Tao to his barber. Now you got to learn how guys talk. You just listen to the way Martin and I banter it back and forth. You okay? You ready? Sure. All right, let's go in. And then the barber. Ah, perfect. A Pollock and a chink. How you doing, Martin? You crazy Italian prick. Walt, you cheap bastard. I should have known you'd come in. I was having such a pleasant day. What do you know? You ruse some poor blind guy out of his money. Gave him the wrong change. And then he's like, who's the nip? That's another pejorative term for various Asian individuals. Oh, he's a pussy kid from next door. I'm trying to man him up a little bit. You see, kid, now that's how guys talk to one another. And then Tao asks, they do? What, you got shit on your ribs? Now you go back out and come back in and talk to him like a man, like a real man. Come on, get your ass out of here. Come come on back now. Tao leaves the barbershop, comes back in, and you know Walt says to his friend Martin, sorry about this. And then Tao comes in and says, what's up, you old Italian prick? <laughs> and then the barber points his rifle at him and says, 
Get out of my shop before I blow your head off, you goddamn dick sucker. Go. And then Walt, Jesus Christ, holy shit. <laughs> take it easy. Take it easy. What the hell are you doing? Have you lost your mind? And then Tao, but that's what you said. That's what you said men say. You don't come in and insult the man in his own shop. You just don't do that. What happens if you meet some stranger? You get the wrong one. He's going to blow your gook head right off. Well, what should I have said then? Well, why don't you start with hi or hello? Yeah, just come in and say, uh, sir, I'd like a haircut if you have the time. Be polite, but don't kiss ass. In fact, you could talk about a construction job you just came from and bitch about your girlfriend and your car. Son of a bitch. I just got my brakes fixed and those sons of bitches really nailed me. I mean, they really screwed me right in the ass. Yeah, don't swear at the guy. Just talk about people who are not in the room. You could talk about your boss, making you work extra time, when there is bully night. Right. Like my old lady bitches for two goddamn hours about how they don't take expired coupons at the grocery store. And the minute I turn on the fucking game, she starts crying how we never talk. Ah, Clint Eastwood, a traditional and modern marvel. You see, audience, my friends, I make fun of, and they make fun of me. I call Wham Bam Cam. We talk about it in The Basement Party, where I've released four episodes of. I call him a Czech son of a bitch. He calls me an Irish degenerate. We remind ourselves who we are, where we come from, and we keep each other honest. That is how you get to the truth. If you hear things that offend your delicate sensibilities, perhaps you should look to the root of where the language, where the terms, where they come from, why they are spoken. Because if we are going to coexist in this land that we call the land of the free, we have to have a free marketplace of ideas. And in speaking clearly and speaking honestly and asserting your opinion, time will tell if your words are true or if you are a false F-Stars prophet. Thank you, you temperate-minded, reasonable gaggle of life forms. Thank you for your devoted and devout attention to Chemovox Sessions. As this is a new year, so too shall we rightfully steer the social ship into a sensical direction. Unwinding the daily sea-sucking grind is tough enough when you have all the facts, but the facts are skewed and sometimes delude your brighter nature. Here you can relax and rest untaxed. Tune in with a sparkled grin and with intense discretion for your next dose of medicinal sound waves. Chapter 52, White Collar Black Belt, Warrior or Warrior? Kimohawk Podient Sessions with my non-bio brother abroad, Adam. Happy New Year, Podients. Alcetto out.